This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Hello, everyone. Hey, Dan. Hi, Marika. How are you today? Doing great. The snow has fallen. It's actually winter here in New England. My back is killing me. Did you shovel? Ugh, yeah, man. I'll tell you. Where are those little kids? When I was a Okay, don't even start. When I was a kid, we (laughs) walked around neighborhoods and shoveled people's driveway for a quarter. I don't know, whatever it was. But it's like, where are those kids these days? Yeah, this is hilarious because yesterday during the snowstorm, I went to the dentist. and um, During the snowstorm? Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't want to miss my appointment and and I had the day off because it was a snowstorm. So you got to get things done. Um, And the, the guy sitting in the chair across from me was complaining about this very same thing (laughs) and about oh we thought the kids would be coming to shovel don't blame them like blame the state of the world right it's a a different world let's get over that that's true i don't know anyway where are those kids though where are those kids playing pokemon go or something wait is pokemon go still a thing no i don't think so oh yeah flash in the pan do you think that um museums wasted their time on it yes do you? Yes. Tell I me think. more. <laughs> Why? You knew you knew it was headed for like this is not that not that interesting. And after a while it just petered out. I think that it was valuable though, in the sense that it was the first time that we actually had any real interaction with augmented reality. Up until now, it's been just kind of conceptual. And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, here it is in our museum. Now I get it. So we as museums have understood how to perhaps take advantage quickly of a trend for a while and then, okay, no longer there. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, don't think anybody wrote it into their strategic plan. <laughs> right. It, it, it wasn't so much the content of what it was, but what it taught us. Yeah. You've been out and about, Dan. So yeah. um Tell me about your interview down in Connecticut. Yeah, so the interview is with this really terrific uh, person named Brian Cofrancesco, who works at uh, Connecticut's Old State House. Uh, he is the consummate networker. He is the consummate burning the candle at both ends, having uh, many, many, many interests and activities. And he's an emerging professional. He's, you know, pretty much just starting out in the field, but he's grabbing life by the horns and wrestling it to his advantage. The reason that I went down there, besides the podcast, though, was that I offered a lunch uh, to the Connecticut League of Historic Organizations, which, as you know, has been threatened with defunding uh, because of the Connecticut budget situation. So they had a silent auction type of thing going where people were offering goods and services and whatever to raise some money. And they did. They did a good job. I offered um, a lunch with anybody uh, to <laughs> talk about anything, really, but wow. you know, career advice okay. or leadership or, you know, the things that I love talking about. And uh, uh, my, st- my staff actually made me blush. They started teasing me saying it was the date with Dan. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. I was like, but then I loved it. A dude won. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they were all like, what's good? But it was a great lunch. And uh, we combined 
that than with a, uh, a podcast interview. And, how um, much did you go for, Dan? How much? What do you mean? Well, how much did he pay for you? How much? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I never ask that. I'm not a monetary person. Is this man. a thing that you offer other places? Uh, well, now I guess it will be. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun. I enjoy doing it. And, um, you know, I, I love talking with people about careers and leadership and uh, and the like. So, um, so it was great. But it was great getting to know him a little bit better. I had met him before. You know, like I said, he's, he's very plugged in. Brian is... Uh, president of his Kiwanis Club in his town in Connecticut. And so uh, we talked a little bit about this in the interview. And, uh, you know, I've noticed that volunteerism, it's been shown that overall this type of membership organization, fraternal organizations, service organizations are not as popular as they once were. And that's, I really think, uh, a problem. Communities really thrive when they've got really strong uh, community-oriented service groups like that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's you know, history ties you to a place, um, and an understanding of a place gives a community resiliency. But um, to create that, you have to connect with other human beings. And and I wonder how much of the decline of volunteerism is related to um, a mobility in our culture now. Hmm. Um, I know that here in Cambridge, there's a lot of grumbling amongst people who live here all the time that so much of the population is transient and because they just come here for school and then they leave you know undergrad or graduate or whatever and I just that makes me so mad when people complain about that because you can love and care about a community even if you only live there for a year how does this all relate to our friend Brian well Brian is very connected and he very much believes in civic leadership and we had this conversation about elected office versus civic participation. And um, he indicated, you know, he aspires at some point to be an elected official, but he recognizes how difficult it is, what a sacrifice it is personally, and how much under the microscope you are. And so he chooses the route of civic participation. He's inspiring because he really makes you realize that it is cool to do this. And uh, you don't have any right to complain about the state of affairs in your backyard or even nationally unless you're actually in the arena. Damn right, Brian. Yeah. So, shall we? Let's give a listen. All right. Buenas noches. Esto es Bueno Jazz. Francesco. I work for the Connecticut Public Affairs Network as the head of education at Connecticut's Old State House. And what motivates me to go to work, I think, is knowing that what we do at the Old State House and through our programming really does impact people. And by us being able to inspire people to get involved in civic life and in their communities, we're reaching so many more people than just those who come through our doors. What's the Old State House like here? So our old state house was built in 1796, and it was the seat of government for a little over 80 years, um, sharing 
another capital with New Haven. And today, it's a National Historic Landmark where we tell those stories of civic participation during the building's use as a state capital and later as a city hall, but also um, what people can do today to participate in civic life and to uh, look at these models from history to inspire themselves to take action and do something around something they care about. I'm imagining you have a lot of school groups. Yes, <laughs> we have uh, thousands of school groups, uh, students and teachers who come through every year. Uh, we have a diversity of programs around civics and history, um, the story of the Amistad, uh, the schooner um, and the trials that surrounded that, which started in our building, our state heroine, Prudence Crandall, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. Uh, we tell many broad tales uh, and stories that really inspire people and educate people, especially students uh, today. Is this part of the Connecticut framework? Or are, they, are they all fourth graders, fifth graders, that type of thing? Oh, we get everybody. Uh, K-12, to college. Um, we do a lot with the state through their new social studies frameworks. And the frameworks really seek to tell the local story um, to a national narrative. And so we're able to do that. Uh, we've done a lot to cater our programs and our offerings to what is being taught in schools, which uh, has been very helpful to teachers, knowing that they can bring students of any grade and we're going to work with them to deliver a program or to somehow meet the standards that they're looking for. So the kids that show up, are they generally... Uh, rolling their eyes and acting as though they'd be rather be somewhere else, or are they really into it? Uh, you know, we that's one thing that I'm very uh, proud of our educators and what we do is we get kids excited about civics. And you know, my boss says it best. You know, Sally Whipple says we teach civics and history, which have to be the two most boring topics in the world. But we get kids excited about it. Um, we have one of our signature programs, the three branches of government. We've just rebranded it to and redesigned it so that it focuses on the role of the citizen. So how you register to vote, how you vote, how you get involved, how you have your voice heard. And, you know, to hear kids getting excited about running for office um, and to see them doing it in our historic chambers where their former senators met, their former representatives, it's so powerful. How important is the space itself? I mean, you can teach civics in school, right? But you're doing something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean... To be able to do it from a national historic landmark like the old state house, where so many things have happened over its 220 year history, you know, it, it really resonates um, for people of all ages. And for uh, in one of our programs on the three branches, you know, the students get to sit in the desks that their legislators sat on in the mid 19th century. And say, you know, this is where your representative sat, and here you are going to learn about your government and how you can get involved. I mean. I think uh, we've had a lot of students who've said, you know, that they appreciate that. I think that especially shapes them down the line when they realize the experience they've had. Well, one of my favorite subjects is creating uh, the historical imagination in people. And that seems like that's one of the things that you're doing is you're if you engender an, you know, that sort of historical imaginative spirit, they can take that wherever it is that they're going historically and start thinking, hey, I was there. What can I learn from this and envision themselves there? Yeah, that's the cool thing is getting kids to be imaginative and you know, the building has so many different ways you can access it, whether you're learning about the story of the revolution or the Civil War or just government in general and getting kids to think about that space, think about the importance of the building. And like you said, just show that imagination. Uh, it, it, it excites them, which I love to see. Kids are such wild cards as visitors. There must be some great stories about crazy things they've done in the statehouse. Name a couple. <laughs> um, you know, I heard... Uh, 
one uh, we had someone working in their office and they heard a bunch of kids going to the restroom and one of them said, I want to live at the old state house, which, you know, is the best part. Um, you know, we've got the same struggles every museum has is not to touch or not to do things and trying to go behind the ropes. And, you know, we have to be very careful of that as all places do. But, you know, I also like to look at the positive side of that is you've got kids who you know, we'll, we'll assume most of them are just so excited that they want to be able to experience something. And that's the curiosity we need to be cultivating is, you know, such a genuine interest for the place where you are that you want to get to know it better. Explain a little bit about the structure of the old state house. It's owned by the state, correct? And you work for a nonprofit. And of course, this year, uh, the state of Connecticut has had a lot of uh, budgetary issues. And for a while, you were closed. Uh, talk a little bit about your structure of how it's operated and how being part of the state system is a plus and a minus. So it's it's very complicated, uh, very hard to explain. Um, but the way it works is the building, the old state house itself and the property are actually owned by the city of Hartford. And they are leased to the General Assembly, uh, the, gen- the legislative branch. Um, as you mentioned, you know, earlier this year in June, uh, management was moved from the legislative branch to the executive branch. And that ended up not being a good move. Um, we were closed from July uh, until the end of November. But we aren't we weren't aren't state employees. We actually work for a nonprofit, the Connecticut Public Affairs Network, which has a mission of civics education, which is what we do through the old state house. And so our team works for CPAN. Uh, to do the educational and community programming at the old state house. So CPAN uh, continued after the closing of the old state house, and we continued to work uh, for CPAN because they really believed in our team and the educators and those who are all part of the core group, seven of us who work for the old state house, um, to make sure we were at the ready when the old state house reopened, which it did at the end of November. And now we are back in the swing of things with our programs. School groups are coming through, visitors, and we're back open to really tell the story of this site. Your constituency, did they protest when you were closed? Or what did you find out about your constituency through your hard times? You know, it's the whole, uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And, you know, it was a hard time for us. But the support of people around us who came forward, especially those who come to the public programs or um, those who support our two signature programs, Connecticut's Kid Governor and Connecticut History Day, and museum colleagues, too, from everywhere, just whether or not they were writing to their legislators, which many of our supporters in the community did, um, or just sending us notes of you know, optimism and we're here to support you. And I think what helped us is we continued, and we were so involved in the Hartford community that even while we were closed, we were running our farmer's market just outside the old state house and uh, offering tours of the outside of the old state house because we felt such a connection to that community. And that really showed as they came back to support us through our other efforts. Well, I suppose if you're teaching civics as part of your programming, you're actually seeing that civics lesson applied in that point. Well, that's the nice part. You know, we believe that civics uh, is not just running for office or voting. I mean, it's being involved in your community and talking to other people. And, you know, that really came back to us when we saw that some of the lessons that we've been sharing and trying to motivate in others came back when people stepped up and wrote letters of support for us or like just came to us in a, a time of need to support us. Tell me a little about the the kid governor program. That's your brainchild and your baby, so you must be very proud of it. <laughs> How long is this podcast? Um, yeah, Connecticut's Kid Governor is a statewide civics program. Uh, we created this program in 2015. And, you know, as I said earlier, civics and history, how do you make that exciting for kids? And we decided to take one of our programs, which is, was an on-site field trip, 
uh, still is, uh, which involves the election of a governor to a statewide level. And so we looked at the opportunities we had. We looked at the partnerships. You know, what are the things that we could take advantage of at this time with what's going on in this landscape? And we said, why not have a statewide election of students for a student governor? And uh, it, it kind of just grew exponentially from there. We looked at the new social studies frameworks for Connecticut, decided on the fifth grade age level, and in fall of 2015 had the first, what we can tell ever, statewide election for a youth governor of Connecticut. And it's not just a governor for a day. Uh, you know, students run on a platform that they've created about a community issue they care about, that they want to see changed, how students can create change. And then other fifth graders vote. They watch their campaign videos and they actually cast a ballot for who they want to represent them. And then that student uh, is inaugurated at the old state house. They run a blog. They run a website, make public appearances. And they work with students and adults and legislators for a full year to make a difference around the issue that they've identified. So it's not just a, an award ceremony or whatever. You actually put them to work. Oh, yeah. They are working for a full year. Um, we're wrapping up our year with Elena Tipton, who ran on a platform of kindness. And in November, the fifth graders elected Jessica Broxham, who ran on a platform of giving a voice to animals. So each of them uh, does appearances, makes speeches. Um, Jessica's already got interviews. Um, we've had interviews with people from around the state. We had an AP reporter in the fall who promoted this nationwide and across the world. You know, they actually do a lot, and it's a year of leadership. You know, that student gets to meet with other students and really be an ambassador for change and civic participation. And uh, it helps them grow as a leader, and it also helps, you know, what we've seen, inspire other students to do something positive around what they care about. How'd you decide on fifth graders as opposed to high schoolers? Well, we really wanted to get to kids young, you know, and fifth grade is one of the grades that comes to the old state house for our programs most often. And that's at a point where, you know, they've learned about civics, likely in third or fourth grade. Um, they're still really optimistic that they can achieve things in the world, which we really do believe. And uh, not jaded yet. That <laughs> They are not jaded. Uh, when you get to high school, you know, there's you know, a little bit of that jaded coming in. But um, also, you know, they're, they're swamped with other things. There's the focus on college and applications. In fifth grade, there's that really, you know, go get them, rearing to go attitude. And it's proven that, that or at least we've found, that's been a really great grade to target. They've been very enthusiastic. And, you know, we've got kids every year we have an election. It comes down to seven students who run statewide. You have six kids who weren't successful, but they're all working to continue their platforms because they believe it doesn't matter if I win or lose, I can still do something. So far, no foreign intervention from Massachusetts or Rhode Island? <laughs> Nothing yet. Uh, you know, New Hampshire's looking a little dicey, but yeah, no, no, uh, no vote forging or any of that just yet. So this really uh, sort of dovetails with uh, your avocation, which is really civic involvement. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I, ever since I was a little kid, you know, my parents raised my sister and I to believe that we need to be involved in our community. It's not just about us and our own little world. And for the years, I mean, I've been very involved with Kiwanis. Uh, it's my big thing. Uh, Meriden Historical Society, other nonprofits and organizations, because I feel that it's all of our responsibilities to make this world the place we want it to be and to give back, especially, you know, I'm very grateful for all I have. And that's why it's been great about what my job is through the old state house, where we're telling both history and civic participation and through kid governor teaching that history and civic participation to the next generation of uh, servant and civic leaders. My 
personal life and my professional life have finally come together. And I think that's what has made my job so rewarding because I love going to work. I love what I do. And you can really see the impact of the work you're doing, especially when you're working with kids. You get an immediate answer if you're successful or not. It seems as though public service, civic participation is is a little bit on the downswing in some communities. There's evidence that people just aren't participating like they used to. Is that true in your mind? I think it varies. I think a lot of, I think there is still quite a bit of participation out there. Um, our team, both with CPAN and the old State House team, uh, we do a lot with the Connecticut's Civic Health Index, which is led by the Secretary of the State's office, which found that there are a lot of people who are out there and are active civically that they probably don't know that they're involved with. And I think it goes beyond just the running for office or getting involved with a civic group. But, you know, do you talk to your neighbors about issues? Do you sit down with your family and talk about issues? You know, how do you do small things, donate philanthropy? And I think we all do it. We just don't really recognize it anymore because the traditional ways of civic participation have kind of expanded and grown. I guess specifically, public office is held in very low esteem right now. We're finding it a real challenge, even on local levels, to get people to run for school committee or school board or whatever it might be. And uh, in part, that's because I think of the perception that people have nationally. Do you find that kids at fifth grade, they're kind of, uh, they, they that doesn't matter at all to them, that this is still something they want to run for office? They have that gleam in their eye. I do. I really do. And, you know, I, I have to say from personal experience, I get that sentiment. I mean, I struggle with that, too. I'd love to one day have an elected office. But when I see how difficult it can be, it's hard to want to subject yourself to that, which is why I go the more traditional route of civic participation through groups and organizations. But when you've got these kids who really see what good they can do by running for office, it's rather astounding. I mean, right now, the Connecticut's kid governor, Elena, who's on her way out of her term, now that she's had a year of this, she has it planned down to what age she's going to run for mayor, what year age she's going to run for the state house or Senate. And then on her way all the way up, she's going to be president when she's 35. She knows that's the age she can start. And, you know, she's 11 and she knows that she's running for president in 2040. And, you know, all kids, their dreams and aspirations change. And maybe she won't do that. Maybe she'll run four years later. I don't know. But for a kid to have that such a strong desire, I actually want to run for public office. That's powerful. And we saw that with a lot of kids this year who realized it's actually attainable to do something. I don't have to be rich. I don't have to have all this other stuff in order to run. I'm a person and I'm a citizen. I, I have an interest in our community. I can actually run. And I think that's what's one of the most rewarding parts of this program and with what we do at the old state house is that kids actually see themselves in their state government, which is what it's all about. How has the kid governor program actually impacted your work at the old state house? Is it bringing uh, visibility to the old state house? It really is. Um, this program started as this little idea um, about a year and a half ago. And over that time has grown exponentially. Um, in this year alone, the 2016 election, which we had in November, had quadruple the student participation that it did last year as far as students, as far as communities that participated. Um, this year we had about 4,500 students uh, who 
voted and participated from all over Connecticut. And it's really helped to highlight the Connecticut Public Affairs Network and what we're doing through our programming. And, you know, our inauguration ceremony is next week, and those kids will get to come to the old state house and see this historic landmark. And one of the benefits of being a kid governor is you get an office, which is in the historic governor's office at the old state house. And so it's really helped to bring prominence to that history. Um, again, history, state history, civics, you know, by putting a building behind it and helping kids realize a connection to a site has built a lot of excitement. Tell me a little bit about your background and your path to the old state house. So um, I, well, actually, I didn't go to school for museums at all. Um, I'm from Connecticut, but I went down to Virginia, to the University of Virginia, go Wahoos, uh, to study architectural history. And for a long time, that's what I thought my dream was going to be. Um, but then I started working at the UVA Art Museum, and then I worked at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, and that's what changed it all for me. And I remember sitting in the entrance hall of Jefferson's house, and it was at dusk with nobody around and I just looked around and I glanced into his room saw you know that the bed where he died and all of this and I realized what museums and historic sites can do to transform people and I knew right then and I said you know the little bookmark in your mind this is going to be a powerful moment in 10 years that this is what I wanted to do and so I eventually left Virginia and came back home to Connecticut, and I worked at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center here in Hartford uh, for three years, doing work in um, interpretation, but then also collections and museum education. And that really spun me into my current role as head of education at the Old State House, where I'm able to do what I love with museums, which is getting people to also appreciate that history and that power of place. As a museum professional, that I, you're a little bit beyond just emerging. You've had quite a track record. But what do you think some of the opportunities and challenges are now for folks that are, you know, sort of at your point in the career and just beginning your career in the museum field? Ooh, that's a big question. Uh, you know, I think it's a struggle of how do you find your niche in the museum world at a time where jobs aren't are very hard to come by. Um, and I know you've had in past museum people podcasts about equal pay and compensation. And, you know, I think it's hard for people to kind of break into that. I found that, you know, by being open to new opportunities and to really build a network of people, that's how I've been able to find luck. But I think that's one of the big challenges is how do you break into this world? And you know, I find everybody in the museum world wants to give back and wants to improve our communities and improve improve the people we work with which is such a noble cause especially since we're willing to do it for very little or no money at all um, and so that i think that's the biggest challenge right now is how do young professionals find their way in and make sure that it's sustainable so that they can stay with this career passion that they love do you have any museum mentors I do. Um, and I've had a lot of people who support me. As I mean, my executive director, Sally Whipple, um, she's so supportive of the work that I do. And she's allowed me to experiment. Uh, the whole Kid Governor program was because she took a leap of faith in helping and allowing me to pursue this new idea that could have gone who knows which way. Um, but I'm always grateful to my colleagues at the old State House, everyone who works there. Um, Liz Shapiro from the Connecticut League of History Organizations, Catherine Kane, um, Shannon Burke, and everyone else who I worked with at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. I mean, everyone has been supportive of the work that I do, and they're always the people who can answer questions, have those long conversations about your future. And 
um, it's, what I've seen is that the museum world is such a nurturing community. Um, and as you build your networks, everyone, you know, they become friends and a little more than just colleagues. Are you a mentor to someone else? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I, a friend of mine, Amanda, and I run Drinking About Museums in Hartford. And I've gotten to know a lot of people. And, you know, I feel, like I said, I feel very grateful for where I've been able to go in my career. And I do my best to be accessible to people, and especially to college students. I run our internship program at Connecticut's Old State House, And I try to be a mentor. I don't know if I've been successful or not, but um, just working with our interns to determine their life goals and figure out what the next step could be or making those connections when they're looking for new networks. Because I've been there. I know what it's like. And I'm only 28, so I feel like I'm fairly close to the age of the students who are coming out. So doing the best that I can to make myself an accessible person and hopefully a mentor to some. What kind of advice do you give people that are following in your footsteps? Ooh, you got to be persistent. I think that's the big thing and open to different opportunities. My, my first jobs were minimum wage, part-time, and it's hard. I mean, and I know that from going through it, but by sticking with, I, I knew this is what I wanted. I knew I had to make the most of it and opportunities opened. What's the museum field look like to you in, say, 20 years? You know, I think we're on a really good track record towards this, but I've noticed this in the library field where they've gone from being shelves of books to really vibrant community centers. And that's, I, for a couple months, I haven't been able to get my mind off that idea. And we see that in some places as museums look more towards public programming, programming around um, social action, like the theme of the NEMA conference. Um, and just getting communities to talk, really being that catalyst rather than just, you know, that attraction that's there on the side. And I think 20 years from now, we'll see that a lot more vibrant community centers that are active locally and active to either create change or inspire others or to rally and gather people to do that. And last question, what's the future hold for you? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, you have a lot of good ones. Um, I Right now, I'm really excited to say that we're looking to take our kid governor program national and to expand to other states. Um, you know, my dream is that one day we'll have a kid governor in every state and really have a new generation of active civic participants by getting to kids at a younger age. And, you know, if this all goes and we're able to pull this off, Rather than doing architectural history or just strictly museums, I think I'm hoping my role in my future will be involved with more civics education, using historic sites like the old state house to be able to tell these stories, hopefully through a program that reaches kids all over the country. Brian here is the guy that's going to improve civic dialogue around <laughs> the United States. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Well, Marika, I want to talk about the Kid Governor Program. I can see why you'd want to talk about that. It's pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. So Brian dreamed up this program mm -hmm. where the kids get to actually take on a role. 
for a year. This is not just a ceremonial, here you get a little certificate. Yeah, they got to work for it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Get an office in the old state house. And how how that woman, <laughs> that, that young woman was saying she wants to run for president. Yeah. And she has a... Got a timeline. Timeline on her own mind. That's that's so wonderful. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that, 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 that he, I mean, I very specifically asked him the age uh, group that he's targeting for this thing. And he said, fifth grade, that's the sweet spot because <laughs> you're not jaded. They're full of energy. And, uh, you know, and, they, and, and I suppose they have the, the bandwidth to do it. Once you get into high school, you're worried about getting into college and this kind of thing sure, becomes well, more of a resume builder. And this yeah. is apparently just honest, pure, yeah. earnest joy. And you're, they're also maybe a little less self-conscious at that age. Right. I can't even imagine doing it as a teenager. Yeah. You would just feel like you're on the spot. But when you're a kid, you still have that that innocence about you. Mm. So that's really fun. And so he, he's proud of the program. And how is he going to be changing it? Or Well, he wants to take it nationwide. And I think that's really interesting because... Uh, Boy, wouldn't that be great if you had 50 states doing kid governor programs? I mean, I have to think that they actually would be a goad to our <laughs> Congress and whatever. If they can, these kids can get stuff done. There you by go. By God, we exactly. can do. If they can work together. And I love, didn't she, she ran on a platform of kindness. Oh, my, it just, <laughs> my, my heart is exploding. Yeah. It's so sweet. I wonder how that manifests itself into law. Yeah, right. <laughs> the kindness program. Oh, yeah. That yeah, that would definitely be a challenge to our current um, mm. our current state of politics. Brian's secret to success. I, I loved hearing this. Uh, he, you know, he is he's self aware, but he said, you know, it's building a strong network, and that's the thing. He, it's clear he works hard on that. He's a very much a people person. So I just want to clarify something because when someone hears that. You are a, a networker. People think that it's just schmoozy getting business cards so that you can like get another job. But that is not the case. Mm-mm. And at one example, as um, I was at an event and one of my nonprofit colleagues came up to me and said, oh, I saw in your newsletter that you were going to be doing this at this venue. And let me tell you why that is not a good thing based on what they did to me. I was like, oh, wow, that's so useful. So I go home and I told my husband, I was like, oh, I just learned about this thing. Blah, blah, blah. And he said, that's your network working for you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like if I had never met her, I never would have known this crucial piece of information that helps our organization. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that networking can do for you. It's very true. I always thought it was this, I, I thought it was schmoozing. I always shied away from it early mm. in my career. I just like, oh, this is baloney. I don't want to have to, you know, give an elevator speech. I don't have to, I was kind of shy, I suppose, too. But, Wait, but what? I didn't, yeah, right? <laughs> people, you do change, right, over Damn. time. But yeah, it, um, it's caring about people. And when you really care about people, uh, it shows. And that's what the network's all about. Like you said, it can assist you, but you can assist others. And um, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it certainly is, I mean, from a functional standpoint, it's the way you get jobs, honestly. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. you know, who you know. Well, he also mentioned persistence. He's very persistent. He put up with those low pay, no pay jobs early in his career, like so many of us do. And said, you know, persistence is a piece of it. Hmm. But, you know, when I asked him this about, you know, what are the keys to your success? He didn't say, well, it's all, you know, about being a go-getter or whatever. But from my perspective, he's the kind of person that is an easy hire for someone just because, you know, you know, he's competent, 
but more than that, he's he's so good with people, and he's so energetic, and he's so committed to what he does that it's very clear that um, boy, this guy is magnetic. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to understand networking and giving better, I recommend Adam Grant's Give and Take, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful book where he talks about how giving comes back to benefit you, and how you're not you shouldn't be seen as a doormat if you're a giver. You just give of yourself, and it sounds like that's what. Brian is doing just in hearing the way he speaks about um, these mentors in his life, which is so charming. And you can tell that he's genuine. Hmm. That's so important. That's what comes through. And uh, you did ask him if he thought he was a mentor. (laughs) How'd you like that? (laughs) Of course. But I think here's the thing is people think mentor is this heavy, heavy thing. And it's not. It's just, it's another form of networking almost. Yeah. It's somebody that you can rely on that, uh, that you trust their advice. Or... You just talk to them a few times. It doesn't have to be a lifelong friendship. Yeah, and you don't have to be Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> just my last closing thought on Brian. Mm. What I loved was that he described the museum community as nurturing. <laughs> and I had to laugh because uh, the museum field is filled with women. Mm. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if there's a correlation there. I don't know. Well, that's stereotypical, isn't it? Sure. You're very, you're very nurturing, Dan. Yeah, but you know, seriously, it's, is it proven that women are by nature more nurturing? Is that something that we, or is that just a societal role? I have not gone into the science on Hmm. that, but. I don't know. Well, stereotypically that that is in fact the the case, but you know, we've already discussed that you can be a man and be nurturing as well, I think. I think it's just because the museum community is filled with wonderful people. Yeah. And we are all givers. We are all people who are more concerned with the the social good and the social connection to each other instead of the individual. And I think that that shines through. But he did um, name all women as supporters and mentors for him, which I thought was awesome. Go, Brian. Just uh, one parting visual before we go. Could you describe Brian's um, key? Uh, So, you know, I was always taught to wear something of interest at all times to spark a conversation. And maybe this goes back to the networking Mm -hmm. thing. But Brian. Yeah, Brian is known for his wooden bow ties. He is a very natty dresser and he's got wooden bow ties. I don't know if this is every day, but every time I've seen him, there's a wooden bow tie. How does one acquire a wooden bow tie? I I didn't ask him. Maybe he whittles them. I think the point is you have to ask him. Right. He's wearing a wooden (laughs) bow tie. Thanks for that interview, Dan. I really enjoyed it. And um, I've never been to the old old state house in Connecticut. I've worked at the old state house in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, But I hope to get down there someday. Yeah. Go kid, kid governor. Right. All right, museum people, that's it for this episode. Stay warm, stay dry, stay positive. We love you. Next time on Museum People. I love writing letters. I'm a letter person, and I am very particular about my stamps. Lots of Americans collected stamps, and and I think before uh, television and the Internet and email, uh, it was a lot more prevalent. The reports of the demise of the postage stamp have been greatly exaggerated. When was the first stamp that featured someone besides a famous, powerful white guy? Ah, that's quite a challenge. Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. 
Thanks for listening.